Hello and welcome to Scanner Today's last week in AI podcast, where you can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, you will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I'm one of your hosts, Andrei Korenkov. I'm a soon-to-be graduate from Stanford's PhD program in AI and currently working at a Silicon Valley startup. Nice. And I'm your other co-host, Jeremy Harris. I, uh, I do AI safety work um, and AI policy work, kind of technical alignment work with a company I co-founded called Gladstone AI. And yeah, we work with the DeepMinds, the OpenAIs, the Anthropics of the World, and other related groups to make AI broadly safer. And I actually wasn't here for the last two weeks, partly because actually, largely because I was working on exactly that. So it's great to be back. Yeah, welcome back, Jeremy. It seems like uh, I'm sure you have a lot of people you're talking to, and there's just so much interest and increasing awareness, I guess, of these topics. Yeah, it's actually, it's been, I mean, we'll talk about some of these stories that really hit the news this week uh, today, but there has been like this explosion in terms of the level at which these conversations are happening, the seriousness with which people are taking things like catastrophic and even extinction level risk from AI. And so, uh, you know, given that that's something that uh, I've been focused on for the last three years, it's kind of weird to see. I'm sure you've we've talked about this kind of in our respective camps for a while now. Like this used to be a space, whether you're talking about generative AI or uh, or actual existential risk from AI and so on, like this used to be a, a niche space where like people like you and I would like have conversations in lunchrooms and nobody would understand what the hell we're talking about. And now it's just kind of like, Everybody seems focused on this space, and so it's a little bit a little bit weird. And the you're talking to to people that you never thought you'd be talking to just because of like the the profile of the issue. So yeah, kind of weird. Yeah, it's it's still a very interesting time and kind of surreal to see this little world of ours just become <laughs> everyone's world. But uh, I guess doing this podcast is nice because we get to see that happen in real time as part of covering the news. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get going. First, we want to address some listener comments as usual. A reminder that you can send us your feedback or thoughts or suggestions at contact at lastweekin.ai. I try to read and respond to most of them. We got one email from Frank who basically gave us uh, you know, pretty nice feedback and suggested that we give more use cases about certain ideas. And I think, yeah, we, we tried to cover implications of news to some extent in addition to just covering the facts. And we are glad to hear that that is of interest. And in fact, we would really like it if you could email us or otherwise contact us on Substack or YouTube and, and let us know how much you prefer us to do the discussion and, and kind of go into implications or whether you think we should mostly stick to just covering the facts of the news and, and less of our kind of analysis. Uh, we really are not entirely certain what people prefer. Yeah. And actually that was like literally just before we got on to record, we were talking about this. We're like, yeah, man, do you think we're, are we over discussing? Are we under discussing? Like what's the balance here? And I think this is some er an area where anyway, Frank kind of, Kenna's comment here is just like very on the nose and, and quite helpful. Definitely. And uh, we had also an email from Matthias who just did some feedback uh, that is always nice to read. Uh, some 
kind of thoughts about how we make some scientific and technical talk and less formal talk, uh, giving pretty quick uh, reviews, but also you know not super short. So yeah, even if you just approve of a way we're doing things, it's good to hear that that's the case. And you know, just hearing what people like or don't like helps us calibrate as to how we do this. It's it's nice to hear positive comments from someone who's not our mom. <laughs> yeah, you always uh, are a little, I don't know, it can be scary to just not know if what you're doing is actually appealing or good. Yeah, there's something about this, right? Like you're talking into the ether, there are people listening and you're just like, I have no, <laughs> I don't know, podcasting is weird. Yeah, definitely. And then just a couple more, we had a commenter on Substack mentioned that we should add chapter markers. So we have always in the description timestamps for each story, but it turns out on things like Podbean and and uh, podcast hosting sites, you can do something more to add chapter markers that are fancier. So I'll try to go ahead and start doing that. And so if you're using the timestamps or you're not using it, them now in your app there might be a nicer way to just skip to stories that you think are interesting and that's it so let's dive into the stories this week we'll have a pretty nice variety of things we'll be talking about some stuff from nvidia with uh video game characters we'll be talking about sort of kind of bigger views of the economy and applications and business. We'll have a nice selection of open source projects with various open source language models, really, for the most part this week. Uh, quite a bit of research with uh, going to embodied agents, which we talked a few times, and some more insights about large language models. And then policy and safety will be pretty big uh, with a lot of talk about safety and sort of governance topics. And then finally, in the last bit on synthetic media and art, we'll talk mostly about music again, which has been quite a theme. So that's pretty interesting. All right. So we're going to kick things off with tools and apps. And our first story here is AI may help design your favorite video game character. This is, um, it's framed around, at least initially framed around an internal email to uh, Blizzard staff. So Blizzard is this gaming company, and in this email they talk about this model called Blizzard Diffusion, which is going to help essentially build video game assets, in-game assets, uh, designing characters, things like that automatically. Um, But then the article kind of zooms out a little bit and covers more broadly the application of generative AI to video games. So it looks at things like dialogue generation, asset development, and and things like that. So just kind of like fleshing out often the like massive amount of content that you need for some of these open-ended games. So you you imagine a game where it's this open-ended world, you're walking around, you're hearing characters have dialogues. Like that dialogue has to be written by someone. It can be hundreds of thousands of lines of dialogue, super expensive, and and kind of thankless work too, right? Because you imagine you toil away, you work for hours and hours just to write this dialogue that just fades into the background. That's not even like kind of the main thing. So that's all part of this push is to find ways to, to just use AI to, to accelerate this stuff. It's a whole suite of products though in the gaming industry. They start to talk about, um, they focus a lot on NPCs, like non non-playable characters, basically like AI characters and giving them things to say and, and doing things like voice cloning, Um, and, uh, anyway, so really interesting view of like how this is really reshaping the video game industry, adding a lot of efficiencies and starting to, in some ways, like kind of threaten jobs, because one of the things that's commented on in this article is just the fact that like 
the way you break into this industry, one of the ways is to do some of this thankless writing work. Like that is one vector of approach. It's kind of like, you know, you used to flip flip burgers at McDonald's and like maybe our parents' generation or something like that. That was your way into getting a little bit of experience. You know, maybe for video games, this is one vector of approach. And if that gets automated, it's like kind of a little bit harder to break into the space. So they're, they're covering a lot of different... Uh, a lot of different aspects, a lot of different technical components, but also the kind of market industry side of the the story as well. Yeah, I really think this is an interesting breakdown. It's a case where it's a little bit more of a challenging problem uh, to get into uh, really being part of a video game creation. There's a lot to any AAA big video game, right? There's asset generation of, first of all, you have concept art, then you have actual 3D models, you have music, you have voice acting, you have writing. So it's a very big team effort on every big video game. And then we have now a lot of ways to generate each one of those things independently of you know, voice acting is one of them. We can create concept art with mid-journey. So it feels like the entire process, every component of video game creation will be affected sooner or later. And just like all these other industries we've talked about, it's a very kind of uncertain time of, of to what extent it will affect workflows and people will probably have a harder time being hired on these entry-level concept art and and you know, dialogue, narration, and writing positions, which, um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's tough to know if that means there will be just fewer thankless jobs ultimately, and maybe the way we do work and hiring will be different, or if it'll just be harder to get going. It's it's a real double edged sword. Yeah, it's it's one of those questions where, you know, d- like, does this make it easier as well for new entrants, like new companies to break into the space? If AAA gaming right now requires hiring like a small army of dialogue people um, and you can automate that away, do we start to see a kind of democratization of AAA level gaming? I mean, like, I don't think it'll happen overnight or very quickly because there's so much that goes into this. But, uh, you know, starting to erode maybe at the margins of some of these gaming uh, developers in the long run, like in the short term might be great, you gain these efficiencies, but in the long run, the floor just rises and it's kind of, it's unclear where this goes. It kind of reminds me of like Hollywood and movies. They're having a similar issue there, right? It's like, you know, how easy does it have to get before, you know, YouTubers start to produce content that's like at the level of a Hollywood blockbuster or potentially not that, that far away from that world. It's kind of weird to be here. It is. And, you know, I I try to not get into it too much, but it would be very relevant to mention that the company I'm working with right now, Astrocade, (laughs) that's kind of what we're doing here. (laughs) The whole idea is kind of a YouTube for video games where you're not going to make these complex games, but we want to make it so anyone who hasn't done any game development can use AI to create these like 2D games where you can modify some of the gameplay mechanics and the character design, the music music, everything. And suffice it to say, it's it it's not easy. <laughs> we haven't launched anything. We are trying to finish up something, hopefully within a few months. But personally, I'm super excited. I want to be able to make games having not done any of that. And I think I do like the idea of just enabling anyone to get going with some of these tools. So yeah, it's as usual... 
kind of nice to enable people, empower people, but also it's a bummer if people end up losing jobs as a result of that. So the, the take home message that I'm getting here is that we're all probably running in a simulation on Andre's laptop. <laughs> yeah, it all comes together. <laughs> and very relevant to that, actually, our next story is watch this NVIDIA demo and imagine actually speaking to AI game characters. And also kind of part of that is NVIDIA unveils avatar cloud engine for games at Computex. So the story here is that there was this event Computex and NVIDIA had a little demo that involved someone speaking with their voice to a video game character and the video game character responded with a voiced, pretty realistic sounding response that had, I, presu- I think, AI generated response that was kind of dry. It was just like, okay, you can go and, and beat this gang here. But the bigger story is that this was really just a demonstration of this NVIDIA ACE Avatar Cloud Engine, which has a few components. It has Nemo TM, which is this way to build and deploy language models for things like lore and character backstories. It has automatic speech recognition and text-to-speech, and it has audio-to-face, which allows to animate given some speech, you know, actually make the character look like they're speaking. So pretty impressive demo, and it seems like they want to provide this to video game developers uh, pretty much along the lines of that previous article. Yeah, it's really interesting to see, you know, we've seen this evolution so much like the compute hardware providers dabbling in model development and then vice versa as well. And like, you know, which companies end up owning the full stack and what are the pressures that push them to making their own models to, to do things like this? And it, it's kind of cool with NVIDIA because you can see their origin story, which was all about video games, kind of like being the natural way that they're being pushed into the sort of like full on generative AI, like video generation, text generation, all that stuff, building their own models. Um, you know, it wasn't, wasn't long ago that uh, they put out well, maybe two years ago, Microsoft Turing NLG, which at the time was like the biggest model in terms of parameter count. And um, that was a partnership with Microsoft, but it seems like increasingly they're doing more and more of this like striking out on their own. And uh, yeah, I'm just really curious if NVIDIA ends up being one of these very important axes that forms, you know, we've got like the Microsoft axis, the Google axis, like what is NVIDIA going to look like? Are they going to be a a kind of full stack player in this long term? And uh, does that mean that they turn into kind of like an AGI lab through this like gaming vector or through this vector of supplying services to to third parties? Anyway, kind of cool. Yeah, it's interesting to see them really digging into the software side. Of course, we've talked a lot how they are a hardware giant, pretty much dominate the space of how to run AI. And now they are also getting into this application side of building um, tools and platforms for here language models and speech recognition, which has been more Amazon and Microsoft and Google as cloud providers. So this is offering some competition and yeah, NVIDIA is well positioned to uh, take them on. On to the lightning round. First up, we have JP Morgan is developing a ChatGPT-like AI service that gives investment advice. That's pretty much the story. They're working on this ChatGPT thing. They call it indexed GPT. They applied for a trademark for it, and it's an AI program that helps you select investments, financial securities, 
uh, interesting choice to go with a pretty high risk uh, kind of task here with a chatbot. Yeah, my, my only comment here is like, if you see a system like this being put out, uh, that means by definition that it is superseded by a significant degree um, or to a significant degree by other internal tools that JP Morgan has, because they would be like clinically insane to release a model that actually gave them like a significant lift uh, relative to the market. So JP Morgan clearly has like more capable tooling, obviously kind of privately under the surface. And this is just what they're, they're bubbling up now to the everyday user. Yeah, I would imagine this is more like entry level kind of straightforward advice uh, rather than anything, you know, let's say too analytical. Yeah. Next story, pretty much along the same lines. We have TikTok is testing an AI chatbot called Taco. So Taco can recommend videos based on what people ask it. There are some screenshots here where instead of doing kind of typical search, they have this little chatbot that says, hey, I'm Taco, feel free to ask me anything and I'll do my best to help you find what you're looking for. Um, building on this idea of chatbots as... Uh, search engine and uh, to me it's it's yeah it's weird to see chatbots just become part of every app even apps that are for consuming content like tiktok yeah it's also like this interesting question about what is the best user experience like do you really want generative search on an app like tiktok where you like turn your brain off you know, most people, that's how they use it, right? They, they rely on the implicit filtering that's done by the algorithm rather than an explicit dialogue. I personally like the idea of having an explicit dialogue function because it does give you more explicit control over what you're being served up. But, uh, but it's, it's interesting, like, you know, not all tools are necessarily a natural fit for generative search. And I think we're going to be learning an awful lot in the next six months about what actually ends up sticking in the space. Yeah, and I guess beyond search, there's also at least an implication in the screenshot, there's some sort of video about King Charles III, I guess it might be historical, and there's an auto-suggest in the bot that says, what is the significance of King Charles III's coronation? So it seems like maybe it's also kind of a question answering to build on something you learn. But again, kind of maybe not intuitively useful for TikTok. So we'll see if people actually end up liking it. And last story, going into just a tool that you can already use. Uh, this is not a new story. It's just something I came across that I think is cool. It's Zoo, a playground for text-to-image models. And we've seen a lot of text-to-image models. And this one basically is you import one prompt and then you see a whole bunch of outputs by Stable Diffusion and DALI and Kandinsky and Deployed IF, which is a new one, and you can compare. And that is still the only way really to see if for your specific use case, these models are the best choices. So it's nice to see that something like this exists. And, and is it free? It's completely free? I believe so, yeah. In this case, I don't know how they're going to keep it free if it gets popular, but uh, it, it's done by Replicate, so I assume there's some sort of sponsorship mm. and it's not just open source. Yeah, it's interesting because like there are a bunch of tools, not, not as good as this one. Like This one looks really cool. I love the model comparison feature. Like You can just see it. On, so Andre included a screenshot in our notes here. And it's like, you know, anyway, there's like half a dozen or more different models you can test out. Um, there are you know tools like Crayon, I don't know if you ever played with that. That's another like free mm. one that's you know got ads on it. But this is uh, this is really cool. I mean, it's the kind of thing that you want as just an MVP check on what model you should use. So anyway, awesome. 
Yeah, this is developed by Replicate, which it looks like uh, focuses on being able to run models in the cloud at scale. So it makes a little bit of sense for them to develop this uh, since you do need to run these models of stable diffusion and deployed at scale <laughs> to create some plugins. <laughs> so it's a nice way to test their product, I suppose. Moving on to applications and business. First, we have insights from American workers, a comprehensive survey of AI on AI in the workplace. Uh, so Checker surveyed American workers from four different generations, which all the generations, I guess, uh, boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, and Gen Zers. They talked to 3,000 employed Americans and asked them a bunch of questions about excitement levels, concerns, and just general sentiment around AI at work. And as you can might, might imagine, there's a lot of findings here. So just a few, 85% uh, of workers admit to using AI tools to perform tasks at work. That seems really high. I kind of wonder if there's a self-selection bias in this. Uh, 85 is uh, pretty surprising, especially for boomers are 80%. Uh, millennials are 89%. Not a huge difference, but some difference. There's also some examples here of... For instance, 79% uh, of workers would take a pay cut for shorter work weeks, if that's possible with AI. 74% of workers believe their jobs might eventually be replaced by AI tools. So uh, not necessarily too many surprising results, except for me, I did find these numbers to be quite high uh, for how new a lot of this AI tech is. Yeah, I found them to be surprisingly consistent too. You alluded to this earlier, but just like, the, the boomer percent, like 77% um, of boomers think AI might lead to a decline in wages. That's compared to like 78% for Gen X, 82% for millennials, 74 for, for Gen Z or Gen Z, as you uh, Yankees like to say. And then um, the percentage of workers who admit using to using these tools at work, like boomers are 80%. And I think that's actually like a really important part of the generative AI story, essentially what it's done, because you can prompt these systems essentially program AI systems using plain English prompts. This is like obviously wildly increased the range of people who can implicitly understand and play with these systems. And it's meant a more educated and aware population overall. You know, maybe the numbers aren't really 80% for boomers. Maybe it's more like 60 or whatever. But the bottom line is like we have people who are over 50 who are just like using the crap out of these tools. And I think that might be playing into a lot of the polls we've been seeing about appreciation for AI risk starting to increase as people go like, wow, you know, like I have used these tools. I do see how quickly they're improving. And um, so things like this, like generative AI, oddly, might actually be serving a really important function in terms of educating people on the range of capabilities and the rate of change in the field. You know, they can see the difference between, you know, chat GPT with a th GPT 3.5 backend and a GPT 4 backend in the limit. Yeah, I, I was talking to my parents a little while back there in their 50s. They are both software developers, so tech is is not something <laughs> that's hard for them. But they both have been discovering ChatGPT and you know, I, I was talking to them and kind of, it's interesting to hear their perspective as, as people who haven't done uh, so much of this sort of AI stuff. And Another thing to note, just my last comment is, as you might imagine, a lot of uh, the people in the survey, 74% of Americans believe AI layoffs are going to occur within the next six months to two years with uh, boomers and Gen Xers surprisingly being more optimistic. 
Um, yeah, I mean, that actually seems low to me. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, 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 it's we'll, we'll see how it actually plays out, um, but I very much agree. I think, I don't know, my overall take home from this is Gen AI, generative AI that is, does seem to be a big generational equalizer. Like you can imagine it's no longer about like, hey, like grandson, show me how to use the remote. Instead, you ask Alexa to show you how to use the remote or just tell Alexa what you want. That sort of thing is is an equalizer in the use of these tools. And it seems to be an equalizer even in the awareness of the, the risks that come with them. Um, so we'll see about the replacement risk. That's uh, I agree. Those numbers seem a little low. Our next story is the AI chip boom is pushing NVIDIA towards a $1 trillion, well, one, towards $1 trillion, really, they mean a $1 trillion valuation, but it won't help Intel and AMD. Okay, so a little bit of background on this. Um, for the last, I don't know how many years, for as long as anyone can remember, the processor of choice when it came to tech was the CPU, right? The central processing unit. This is the thing that all computers had forever. And that was responsible for churning out most of the value we got from technology. You just use CPUs to do all your techno number crunching. And what's happened really in the last like 10 years, but increasingly with generative AI, is that GPUs have taken on more and more of the load of society's computations. So if you look at the average data center, you start to see less and less CPUs and more and more GPUs as AI starts to generate more and more of the value in the economy. And this is an article basically about NVIDIA's CEO, Jensen Huang, who is stepping up and saying, hey, like this is actually happening. If you look at the average, you know, kind of like data center, you're going to start to see the ratio of GPUs to CPUs increasing. And why does that matter for NVIDIA? Well, NVIDIA a long, long time ago positioned itself in the middle of the GPU market. They right now own something like 95% market share. It's just an outrageous number. And so uh, they're really well positioned to take advantage of the generative AI boom. So what you've seen, the story of the last few years has been Nvidia's stock price steadily going up, essentially as humanity offloads more and more of its computations from CPUs, which was a market dominated by Intel and to a lesser degree, AMD, um, over to GPUs, which is dominated by NVIDIA. So the stock price for AMD has kind of been flatlining, and Intel's kind of been going down for various reasons. Meanwhile, NVIDIA is skyrocketing. And one of the big take-homes here is that not all compute is created equal. Right? We want to start to kind of differentiate between CPU-driven computing and GPU-driven computing, whether that's for training large language models or large models, or inference, which increasingly is going to become more and more important. So. I uh, thought that was cool. Definitely. And I think one thing to note as well is NVIDIA was very smart, not only in having you know, the GPU market already, but also in the development of CUDA and, and other software. Mm -hmm. The reason that AMD, you, there are other good alternatives for GPU hardware, but CUDA is just by far the best set of uh, software for you know efficiently running neural nets, integrating with PyTorch and these existing other frameworks. And yeah, there's just not been very much competition for it. Actually, there was another interesting article, um, another interesting piece of news last week about uh, GeoHot, this hacker who worked on self-driving for a while and has been kind of around AI, creating a new company with Tiny Corp to basically address this, to build software for AMD chips for other types of GPUs 
so that maybe there will be alternatives to NVIDIA GPUs, which is pretty much not the case right now, I don't think. It is weird, right? I mean, like, it's just so strange to see a situation where basically there's a complete monopoly. Like, this is better, like, bigger than Google's search monopoly. Like, it's that big. And, uh, and yeah, the software totally, like, the software ecosystem has been such an important part of this. And just, like, overall, the developer community, too, around it. Like, these things compound in ways that make it really difficult to, to break in as a new entrance. So, I think that's a really good point. CUDA has been a big part of that story. And we'll see, you know, we, we've got Microsoft, Apple, and Google. They're all making their own chips now too. So maybe they'll be able to use their, their market penetration in other verticals to sort of finally kind of chip into uh, NVIDIA's market share. But yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a tall order for sure. Yeah, and there have been you know competitors who actually have tried to compete, things like Cerebrus and, and other companies and... Uh, there's been progress on hardware. They've gotten a lot of money, but so far I haven't seen very many results. Uh, so I guess as the need for hardware will grow exponentially, maybe there will be more opportunity for alternatives to NVIDIA just because of the sheer market size. It'll be interesting to observe. That's true. Five percent. The five percent that uh, NVIDIA doesn't have might actually be worth enough to like seed an awful lot of uh, good tech. On to the lightning round. First, we have Hoffman and Soulmind's AI startup Inflection launches ChatGPT-like chatbot. So this is Inflection AI, an AI company that was co-founded by LinkedIn uh, co-founder Reid Hoffman, a very big name in Silicon Valley, and Google DeepMind co-founder Mustafa Suleiman. So big names. They have launched their AI chatbot uh, called Pi, and you can go talk to it at heypi.com slash talk. It compares to ChatGPT. It's pretty similar, but their whole thing is they want it to be more supportive and kind and kind of empathetic and friendly. Yeah, it's kind of kind of an interesting additional play in the large language model space. I think maybe like one piece of meta commentary that might be helpful because we hear about these launches happening all the time. You know, Elon Musk is launching his like company X, and then there's you know there's Adept AI, and and there's this, there's that. Um, the the this ecosystem has a couple of players like at the very frontier, and more or less that's like Google DeepMind and OpenAI and maybe Anthropic, and then there's like a bunch of secondary players whose models often are a little less good perhaps than the the frontliners um but uh but anyway it's it's a good set of options for the ecosystem for sure and it's also interesting to see alignment used as a differentiator now between these different products you know like they're they're coming up and saying like hey inflection ai we have a chatbot that is different because it's more supportive and and kind and so on relative to other other chatbots so it's a personality difference it's an alignment difference rather than a capabilities difference which i think is kind of an interesting feature of this whole ai race definitely yeah i think chatgpt sort of set this precedent of almost being a general purpose chatbot yeah but now you have things like this like perplexity which is more for search specifically that can cite new sources so i think differentiation in kind of what a chatbot is designed for will make it so chat gpt is not the only <laughs> chatbot that matters potentially Next, uh, another story, Eating Disorder Helpline fires staff transitions to chatbot after unionization. So the National Eating Disorders Association 
decided to replace their hotline workers with a chatbot named Tessa four days after workers unionized. Just so you know, Tessa is not a ChatGPT-esque thing. It's uh, kind of a traditional chatbot with rules and a guided conversation. So it's pretty simple. And they did test it for a couple of years, uh, so and they got good feedback. So it's not quite as bad as, as it may sound, but you would imagine for this sort of thing, you would want humans to talk to. Yeah, you you would imagine that. <laughs> yeah, and it's I think it's worth noting too, like you know, the reason that you might want something not quite like Chat GPT for this sort of application is the sensitivity of it. You know, you cannot guarantee that Chat GPT won't say something stupid, something insensitive, something even dangerous, encouraging self harm or something like that. If prompted in a slightly weird way, you know, we've seen all kinds of prompt injection attacks. So the use of a rule based system with like a guided conversation, much more structured, probably comes from that and also is going to be related to like how long it's taken them to roll this out. Because if you're going to go rules-based, you really have to look at all the edge cases in a more detailed way. Um, but anyway, th- I, I think this is just like another one of those really challenging governance problems where it's like, you know, if if this were chat GPT, you know, if it was just like, hey, we're going to replace you all with generative AI, what is the role of unions? You know, how, how does their leverage change? Should there be governance implications to this being an option now? Um, it's not like I have the answers, but it's a, it's a thorny and, and pretty pressing problem. Definitely. Yeah. We've talked about the writer strike and that is a union strike. Yeah. And it's very interesting now with this potentially becoming more of a thing. Unions have really kind of over time in the US lost power and become mm-hmm. less prominent. And I wonder if that trend is going to reverse in a big way with AI and automation. Last story, AI startup Figure raises $70 million to build humanoid robots. That's pretty much it. Uh, we've talked about humanoid ro- robots a couple of times. That's things like the Tesla bot. Um, and they raised a lot of money uh, from kind of a crop of companies that are starting to do this. Uh, $70 million is a big number now. VCs are a little hesitant yeah. to give out checks like this. So uh, I was pretty taken aback. Yeah, I think a meta comment to your point is like when you see fun. So two years ago, if you saw a number like this, I would have been much quicker to be like, okay, this is just like a bunch of FOMO driven investment. Like it's very likely to be that, especially in AI. But um, the combination. So hardware is, I think, an area where heavy investments of capital actually make sense. I think they're going to make less and less sense for reasons I've talked about earlier on the podcast uh, for software companies just as generative AI can do more and more of the work and smaller and smaller teams can produce bigger and bigger companies. So you don't need as much investment early on. It just doesn't make sense from like a, an ROI standpoint. But uh, anyway, I think it's it's really interesting. I suspect that the most profitable investments of the next like three years in tech are going to come from deep tech rather than software. Yeah, this is a company's first external round. So I guess it's Pretty early on, it's only one year old, and it does show, I guess, a lot of uh, confidence, which is interesting. All right, now moving on to projects and open source. We're starting with the story about Panda GPT, one model to instruction, follow them all. And this is like 
in a way, this is the ultimate last week in AI story, isn't it? Because it's a convergence of a bunch of different things we've talked about in the open source, leading to a model with some surprising capabilities. So zooming out, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this model called ImageBind that Meta AI built. And basically, this was a model that was trained on six different kinds of inputs. They had infrared, video, audio, um, uh, images, like all kinds of stuff. And they would pair these different modes together to like train a model to map an image or a video or whatever to a representation, a latent representation in a shared space. So your images, your videos, your audio, they all get mapped to the same latent representation. Roughly speaking, what this means is like the audio of a bird chirping, of a crow chirping, should end up uh, mapping to the same thing roughly as an image of a crow that is chirping or a video of it. So this is like one model that learns to understand many different kinds of inputs in a consistent way. And what they're doing here is they're coupling it to this language model called Vicuna. Uh, we talked about Vicuna earlier, but anyway, bottom line is they pair these two things together and then they, they train this kind of paired system to take in an image. So they use image binds kind of image processing mode to um, pair it to the language mode with instructions. So they'll give it an image and say like, you know, tell me where Waldo is in this image. And they'll train it on that kind of instruction task to, uh, well, to solve for those tasks in writing. So an image plus some text, and then the, the model is trained to produce an output that kind of performs the task that is being requested in the text associated with the image. If you're still following, now what they do is they realize, oh shit, um, because ImageBind actually can deal with way more than images. You can feed it video or audio or whatever. Now, if we feed it video or audio and the instruction, it'll still do a really good job because it, was, it maps videos and images kind of to the same latent representation. And so in this way, even though you only trained your model on images and text as input for instruction following, you're actually able to get a model that can instruction follow based on audio, based on infrared, based on all these modalities, because ImageBind maps them to the same kind of representation. So this is like, I don't know, I found this really cool, um, surprisingly simple again. It seems like one of these weirdly low-hanging fruit, and it is open source, uh, so kind of yeah, you can go out and, and download this and, and play with it. What did you think about it, Andre? Yeah, this is very cool, uh, very you know exciting and, and pretty straightforward approach that does lead to a kind of big deal. Very quickly churned out. ImageBind is pretty new. Yeah. Vicuna is pretty new. And this is the University of Cambridge collaborating with Venara Institute of Science and Technology and Tencent AI Lab. Just really got it done quick and put out this technical report. This is uh, not, I don't know if this is a, even a research paper. So that's the first thought is big deal. Second thought, Panda GPT, and they really stretched to get that Panda acronym. <laughs> yeah, it's that's so true. Empower <laughs> large language models with visual and auditory <laughs> it's uh you know you gotta give them some credit for that creative acronym uh, selection um yeah i don't have much more to add it's a cool approach and a cool result and good on them for really going with it and and getting it done so quick 
Yeah, I, I think one of the the last things I'll just mention is uh, we have a screenshot here of um, something taken from the the paper, just illustrating concretely what it can do. So they'll like feed it uh, a video about a couple that's taking a stroll together, and they'll add as well a recording of thunder and pouring rain, and then they'll ask the model. Um, or the prompt is now I am closing my eyes. Please describe what you can see and hear for me. And the model says, as you close your eyes, you can still see the image of the two people walking down the street at night, carrying umbrellas to protect themselves from the rain. It goes on. But anyway, the point is it's actually successfully integrating the audio, the video, the text. This is all consistent with that meta AI philosophy that we've talked about before on the podcast of achieving general AI through multi-multi-modality, this idea that the human brain learns from all kinds of data, right? We're constantly processing data from our five senses, and this is really pushing harder in that direction. They explicitly say this in the paper. They're like, this is a, basically, this is a step towards AGI. They frame it that way explicitly. And um, anyway, kind of cool, uh, kind of cool to see this come out. Tencent AI Lab, you know, Andre mentioned the, uh, the, that some of the contributors come from there. That is a Chinese lab. So this is a, a collaboration between Cambridge and this Chinese lab. Um, so showing some of the, uh, anyway, the international dimensions of the, uh, the academic move towards AGI. Yeah, and I will, I guess, comment one more thing, which is um, to go to this multi-modality level, ImageBind, as we noted, I think was their fundamental approach was very cool because it's not necessarily easy to get um, pairs of uh, things across these modalities. And when you have a ton of modalities, you can't necessarily get you know, aligned things, but if you can... Uh, map it all to text, uh, then it's much easier. And this is still relevant here, where now with that same approach, you can use a chatbot uh, even without needing to have a chat uh, conversation, let's say, about a video or audio. So yeah, I think that's pretty important. Multimodality is hard, and this is a pretty big step. Next, we will talk about a blog post called Uncensored Models from Eric Hatford. So this is about how this person took an existing language model, Wizard LM, and published what they say is uncensored versions, which is essentially unaligned versions uh, in a weird way. So the idea is they take an extraction dataset, so a dataset that you use to go from a chatbot, uh, from a language model to a chatbot, but you, uh, they then removed anything in which the chatbot refused to answer a question uh, or um, you know follow up to an input. So that is the answer bit where the chatbot then cannot or does not censor itself by saying, I cannot do that. And there are some arguments for why that's important and uh, for why this needs to be open sourced, uh, such as that, for instance, the alignment that we have for models in America may not apply across the world, that it may interfere with valid use cases, uh, that ultimately you should be able to choose what you want to do with the model, things like that. And I think obviously there's a lot to chew on here in terms of whether this is you know, reasonable if you want to have something like this. Uh, what do you think, Jeremy? 
I mean, I, I think it's one of those situations where we're being forced yet again to do philosophy on a deadline. Um, you know, this is the classic like libertarian argument for that we, we've heard before articulated by many different people in different ways that like, look, my, my model, my choice, um, or, uh, or, or uh, what's the other one? Um, Oh man, yeah, yeah. Like models don't kill people; people kill people. Like you can take different um, different political perspectives on this, but ultimately, in a sense, it is it boils down to a political problem: um, how much freedom should individuals have in defining the capabilities of their models? And like in principle, this argument: it's my computer; I should do what I want. That uh, that's cited in this article. You can imagine that being applied to saying, oh, "Well, look, it's my computer. If I want to make AI generated." Uh, spam attacks or malware, I can do that. If I want to make AI-generated uh, child pornography, I can do that. Like the 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 set of things that we now have to consider as part of the, the this universe is rapidly kind of exploding. So I think this uh, is a problem that we can't ignore. It's a problem that people are going to have very strong views on one way or another. But uh, right now, the fact that the technology exists to kind of just like launch these unaligned models is itself a problem. The decisions of big companies to launch unaligned models, like we saw Microsoft do this with GPT-4 initially, uh, with actually fairly uh, embarrassing consequences at the time for Microsoft, when the model started to threaten users and do all kinds of things. In that case, it was because they were in such a rush to release the model. So there are a lot of reasons that we can find these unaligned models released in the wild with you know, capabilities that could be leveraged for malicious activity or have other risks. But, uh, but what we do about that, I mean, that's, I think, a really big and important problem. Yeah, uh, I think also the idea here of fundamentally subsampling a data set for making a model do what you want is interesting. You yeah. can imagine how not, you know, you could just remove one specific thing, like, you know, I don't care about you being racist or something like that. It's does show, again, as we've discussed many times, the double edge of open sourcing where you know you ultimately don't have control over what people do with whatever you open source. And even if you would prefer people to use it in one way, people will you know, disagree and do it another way. And um, that's just where we are. It seems like we are in a deadline, this is happening, and we'll just have to see what, what happens. Yeah, it's also just as a last quick note. I mean, it's not super obvious to me that the the framing here of this being like an unaligned model actually makes sense. You know, like models have behavior, and that behavior is a reflection of their architecture, their training data, their training context, you know, their prompts, and so on. It's not clear to me that just by removing the cases in which uh, you know the the um, the, the developer decides that the model is refusing to do certain things, you're actually like debiasing. I mean, in a sense, like, what does it mean to refuse to do certain things? You know, what if the model just makes a, a lie of omission or just doesn't mention something that could be dangerous? Is that refusing to follow the instructions in a non-explicit way? I mean, like, this is a, it's a pretty big rabbit hole, but ultimately I think that it is true. It's trite to say, but it's true that our values get reflected implicitly in the the framing that we set up with our, our models and so it's i don't think it's quite as straightforward to like uncensor or de-bias a model as you know might initially seem yeah the, the notion of being uncensored is, is kind of strange just instruction tuning in general right is making it to a chatbot and it's kind of impossible to not make it a little bit you know have a voice and, and a specification but yeah interesting 
step toward this. And this is for Wizard Lamb. There were other efforts for Vicuna. So I guess this is a whole kind of category that we'll have now. On to the lightning round. First, we have Guanaco from Tid, uh, Tim Detmers, who has a popular blog. And this is a new language model that is open source on Hugging Face and appears to have pretty good results. Uh, there are models here from 7 billion to 65 billion that get really good performance, better than Vicuna and ChatGPT, or, or comparable at least. And uh, yeah, we've seen how Llama has been pretty, you know, fundamentally important. And it appears here that this is uh, on that uh, level too, which makes this a big deal. Yeah, it also sort of makes it seem like Meta may not have played the, the massive role that we might assume it did in kind of pushing things forward. Like if you didn't have the Llama leak, then you know we would have been here maybe you know whatever it is two months later uh, just a, a reflection of the incredible rate at which open source is moving you, know, you can you can take away the leading actor and the second place actor shows up like a couple of weeks later with a model almost just as powerful so um, yeah I mean I, I think it just just reflects how also widespread and available processing power is like this will not have been uh, you know a trivial amount of processing power that would have gone into training the system um, so that's uh, you know yet another yet another uh, kind of point in favor of the the proliferation idea that this stuff inevitably leaks out yeah and I guess the last thing I'll mention is it does make me think like I had no idea wizard LM is even a thing now we have Guanica I'm starting to lose track of yeah. all the open source language models and chatbots that are out there. And that's really, yeah, it does show how now it's accessible and the hardware, the algorithmic advancements and the data sets that have been released makes it possible to do this stuff. It's, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to better understand like the uh, comparative advantage as between these different base models. Because at a certain point, it's like, you know, why, you know, wh what is the, the motivation to put out a new system like this, especially if it's going to cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to train or something. Um, I'd, be, I'd love to understand that better. Like what, what is the calculation that's going into these open source uh, releases beyond a certain point? You know, when we have Llama, when we have Gorilla and so on. But uh, yeah, interesting economic issue. Yeah, uh, I can't say that I know too much about how this was done, by the way. Uh, I think this is maybe not a new language model. This is LoRa, so this is instruction tuned on oh, the Llama. Okay. Uh, so that's a quick correction on my end. It's still hard to train full language models, but still uh, very good performance by instruction tuning. Okay, so I'm sorry. So it's instruction tuned. It's not a pre-trained, a fresh pre-trained model. Yeah, I think okay. it wasn't too clear, but that's what I'm getting from the Hugging Face uh, demo. Yeah. Okay, okay. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah, because then we're talking yeah. like, yeah, a few hundred bucks to, to fine tune. I was thinking like, whoa, this is like, this could be like millions of dollars or something. Like who yeah. is who is funding this? Yeah. Yeah. Next, Gorilla, large language model connected with massive APIs. This is from Berkeley. And yeah, this is a language model that can provide appropriate uh, API calls trained on several massive machine learning hub datasets, uh, Torch Hub, TensorHub, and Hugging Face. We talked about something similar to this, I think, maybe a couple months ago with Hugging Face having this 
model that can decide to call other models uh, depending on the uh, input. And yeah, here it's kind of the same thing. They release it, it's open source, and it's good at writing API calls better than GPT-4. Yeah, the, the language or the API usage, the tool usage models, I think are going to be really, really interesting because they, anyway, they radically expand the scope of effective capabilities that your model has. So, you know, you might think like my model can do X based on interacting with it alone or even just based on hooking it up to a small number of tools. But there's like this emergent thing that happens when your model can interact with many different tools, there are combinations of tools that can lead to Know, even even your capabilities. So I think this is kind of like an underrated vector, even for things like AGI development. Like you might get a sudden capabilities lift from you know, the right kind of tool use combination. Uh, so anyway, a really cool, uh, cool bit of research. Definitely. And again, building on that same uh, comment and trend, we have Bloom Chat, a new open multilingual chat LLM. So another chat bot. Uh, this is in collaboration with Together and Sambanova. This is a 176 billion parameter multilingual chart chat LLM uh, released uh, under Apache 2.0. It's trained on Sambanova, so this is a hardware company. Uh, their hardware is uh, pretty good, comparable to GPT-4 almost, and it works really well. So yeah. Another one of these uh, things, this is instruction-tuned Bloom specifically. Yeah, I guess just more proliferation then. And uh, you know, Bloom continuing to be used as a base model for a lot of interesting experiments. That's kind of cool to see. Um, but yeah, nothing, uh, nothing too, too dramatic here. Yeah. Yeah, it's available now. You can chat with it and uh, the model is hosted. So uh, pretty much, yeah, similar to all these other things that we keep covering. And onto something a little bit different, uh, open source on GitHub, you can now go to Girlfriend GPT, your personal AI companion. It's a starter project to help build your own personalized AI companion with a unique personality, voice, and even selfies. Uh, uh, yeah, so custom voice connected to Telegram. You can customize your personality and generate selfies, I guess, from text to image. Um, yeah, it's obviously, I don't know, the first impression might be that it, this is funny, but as we've discussed, the whole notion of AI companions has potentially pretty deep implications for people's mental health and, and lifestyle and so on. And now you can build your own. Yeah, nothing, nothing wrong with that. By the way, the screenshot that they share in this thing is like, I don't know, I read it as kind of creepy. Like the, the bot is saying, good morning, how did you sleep? And that's like, that's the opener. Um, obviously, that's like the entire point of this thing. But I think it does speak to the level of intimacy that people are developing with these sorts of things. We've seen this with Replica before, a sort of closed source version of this kind of tech, where in that case, I mean, you had people who were driven, I think it was Replica, uh, were, were driven to contemplate suicide and things like that when the service was temporarily terminated. And um, anyway, so like, there are real, uh, real implications, as you said, Andre, for human psychology. And I, yeah, I, I really wonder about the open sourcing of stuff like this too, because it just becomes so customized. It's, you're almost, you're almost developing a tool that allows you to not have to negotiate your personality with other people. You can just keep 
like updating the personality of, of whatever you're talking to so that you don't have to change and the kind of the onus, the impetus of, of changes is outsourced to, in this case, some software. So yeah, uh, interesting development for sure. Yeah, and in this day and age where people already kind of suck in socializing and making friends, like historically <laughs> low rates of friendship and high rates of loneliness, uh, not a great combo maybe to have these things, yeah. but uh, <laughs> it is what it is. Up next, we're talking about research and advancements, and we're opening with Voyager, an open-ended embodied agent with large language models. Okay. I thought this was really cool. Um, at first, when you read the description of what this is, uh, it's basically an agent that learns to solve, I don't want to say solve Minecraft, but come pretty close to solving Minecraft. So Minecraft is this super open-ended game. If you haven't played it, it's like you're in a 3D environment. There's a tech tree. You gradually discover new tools. You can use those tools to gather resources. You can use those resources to build stuff like buildings and things like that. So there's kind of this like, open-endedness to it. It's not clear what your ultimate goal is. You're just sort of exploring this environment and building more and more interesting stuff. And that word interesting is actually really important because there's a school of thought in AGI research that says that the way you get to AGI isn't by building better and better kind of goal-directed agents. Instead, it's pursuing interestingness, creating agents that learn to pursue interestingness. Um, so Ken Stanley, who works at OpenAI right now um, on, on their open-ended, I think he leads their open-ended learning team. He has a whole thesis. He even has, has a book on this whole idea. And Minecraft in a way is like the ultimate environment to test for that. Like you have this open-ended thing. It's not a clear goal. Like what kind of intelligence do you see and how far along the tech tree does your agent manage to kind of progress and unlock? And the cool thing about this is that they're using GPT-4 to do this. So instead of making a reinforcement learning system, they're actually basing this entire architecture on a large language model. And they're allowing it to explore its environment, to prompt itself, and to create chunks of executable code that it then saves. So every time it does something useful, it goes like, okay, let me write some code to do that. And I'm going to save that code in a library that I can then refer back to. And so it has this growing library of, of strategies of code that it can then execute. And that, in a way, helps it self-improve over time and solves this like problem known as catastrophic forgetting, or at least addresses that problem, uh, which is the idea that as an agent can navigates its environment more and more, eventually it starts to just forget what it learned earlier. And so this is a way for it to store in, in hard form uh, the lessons, the, the, the code, the programs that seem to be valuable for it. So I think kind of interesting. Uh, it sort of blew my mind at first when I saw the headline, when I saw how it was implemented. I was yet again shocked at like just how simple these things are like you just wire together in you know fairly intuitive ways. This is not a criticism. I think it's actually just a reflection of how impressive the idea is, um, and and you just get this amazing capability. So uh, I don't know. I thought this was a really cool thing on a task again, Minecraft that has historically been just so challenging for AI uh, in the past. Well, what do you think about it, Andre? Yeah, I think this is very cool. It uh, builds on these things we've seen before of having a language model act as a sort of high-level reasoning uh, module for trying to figure out how to get to a pretty complicated task here in Minecraft. Building a diamond axe requires a very large number of incremental steps. So that's why 
learning to do those individual things uh, helps a lot instead of having to just do it from scratch. Very intuitive approach also, this idea of basically trying to discover new things you can do and then combining them kind of makes me think of what any human would do when starting to play Minecraft. You just sort of yeah. test uh, how what you can do and how you do it. And eventually you combine simpler things to do harder things. Uh, yeah, and, and the way this is done also, like usually this exploration and skill discovery has been more in the reinforcement learning domain. Here, it's there's no training of a model. It's all in context, lifelong learning. They just prompt a model to like go and suggest a thing you can try to learn and go try it. And then if it works, you store it. It's this very system level approach to creating an agent that learns over time, which is very different from what we've seen before. And maybe in some ways limited, this idea of automatic uh, curriculum generation is a little bit, uh, let's say, maybe not scalable. There are nitpicks that you can have, but overall very cool. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to see more and more of the cognition, the self-improvement get outsourced to uh, in the in-context learning stage, right? So like in instead, like you pointed out, Andre, like instead of actually updating the weights of the network or doing any kind of like online RL or stuff like that, uh, you're actually just seeing the system reason um, through prompting, basically doing in-context learning and, and improve in that way. That, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that turns out to be a really important trend that we see extrapolate over time. Uh, already auto GPT is showing signs that that can really be extended quite a bit. But uh, yeah, more generally for me, I think the one of the big take-homes of this was just how much you can kind of jump in capabilities by coming up with clever prompting mechanisms. It's another example like AutoGPT, where you know a system that on its own, GPT-4, could not solve this Minecraft problem, but you just find a way to wire it together and then boom, you have a sudden leap. And so for people who historically have argued that we might actually just find ourselves like leveling up to AGI with a fairly sudden change, like a step function of improvement due to a kind of little tweak in our approach, um, I think that that perspective becomes more plausible every time we see something like this or something like baby AGI or, or auto GPT that shows us just how far a simple prompt engineering can go. Definitely. And, and the one more thing I'll note as far as trends go is the use of memory. Uh, memory yeah. is one of these uh, kind of unsolved problems with language models where you do need this notion of, you know, they have a context window, something like ChatGPT can remember the last, I don't know, 1,000 lines of text it has seen, and that's it. It has no long-term memory. And more and more people are introducing these kind of external modules that uh, help the language model store and retrieve things, uh, not as part of what's been trained, as another component that's built into a system separately. And I still think those are a little bit ad hoc and, and don't necessarily scale to a lifelong kind of uh, need or use case, but it is there's a lot of work on it, and I'm sure people are making kind of discoveries on memory. So I think that is another interesting component of this. 
Next paper, a pre-trainer's guide to training data, measuring the effects of data age, domain coverage, quality, and toxicity. So this is, yeah, pretty much we have all these data sets for pre-training language models composed of a lot of uh, stuff from the internet, more or less. So, and here they... Uh, show that these data sets are usually composed of a lot of Wikipedia, a lot of code, a lot of books, and just general web content. And they break down how different dimensions of a data impact your performance. So you can look at from what time period is it? Is it from the early 2010s or just last year? What is the uh, quality of the data? So how, let's say, noisy it is, how much just not useful writing there is versus informative writing that is high quality. And then also how much of it is toxic, how much of it is stuff that you would want to avoid um, outputting as opposed to, you know, maybe it's just information. Uh, they pre-trained 28 different 1.5 parameters uh, language models with you know different variations of this data, and then they quantify the effects of doing those things. And the main findings is that it actually matters, as we kind of already know. But this is the first really empirical observation of when you compose your data set, what might be the effects. And there's really no one size fits all solution for how you filter your training data. Yeah, it also makes me wonder, you know, looking at this 1.5 billion parameter scale that they're investigating, whether these results would actually scale. Uh, just because we have seen historically, you know, as you cross thresholds of scale, you tend to see, for one, you tend to see greater data efficiency. And so your models tend to like learn faster, and uh, you know you could imagine some of these effects maybe washing out as you as you go to higher and higher scales. Um, but this is just really fascinating. They have a, a cool table again that Andre very helpfully included in our our prep doc here, um, where they compare the the represented domains, basically the the kinds of data that are used to train a bunch of these famous models from. Llama, which we've talked a lot about, to Palm, Bloom, GPT-3, and so on. And they break it down based on like Wikipedia, uh, web sources, books, dialogue, code, and uh, a CAD. A CAD. What does that mean? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> and a CAD. There's also a CAD. So if you're if you're a fan academic. Of that, oh, academic. Okay. <laughs> That's like, all right, there you go. Academic. Thank you. Um, yeah. And anyway, it's kind of cool. Like you, you can see a sort of fingerprint of the uh, the training distribution profiles of all these different models. And if nothing else, I just found this kind of interesting and informative. Uh, it definitely suggests that like there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in terms of building more data sets because you see a lot of historically like very powerful models uh, like Palm that, for example, include no academic data whatsoever. So there's a lot of like, you know, further uh, sources of data they could leverage. And it, it kind of makes you wonder, you know, how would these models... Uh, behave if you included more of one and less of another, which it turns out is like less important of a question than we might have expected. So overall, I don't know. I, th I find this really interesting, and I do I do have questions about how it would scale. You know, like would we see the same results if we trained a compute optimal model at like ten billion parameters or hundred billion parameters? But uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good question, and I think this is a good start. It's yeah. surprising that this hasn't been done already, given that we know that data composition is very important. So 
Good job. There's a lot of findings here that we won't go into. As usual, you can follow the links. And there's very kind of high-level writing that is pretty straightforward. So if you're curious, you can just go to the paper. Out of the lightning round, first, RWKV, Reinventing RNNs for the Transformer Era. So before we had this neural net architecture called transformers, we had uh, recurrent neural nets, which are pretty straightforward. It's just this idea that you can input sequential things and you the RNN kind of continually updates the output or, or what it is computing with each sequential output. Transformers are different. Instead of sequentially inputting and computing, you pretty much just have a whole sequence all at once. And there's trade-offs. So having the whole sequence makes it much easier to train, and it turns out to just have worked better, which is why everything is transformers now. But that does lead to this quadratic scaling of uh, you just need a lot more memory and size to deal with that. RNNs have linear scaling in terms of computation given input length. And this paper, without getting too much into the details of how it's implemented, is suggesting that they can have the best of both worlds. They can have the simpler training with the better results comparable to transformers while having better scaling. Um, so we've seen a few things like this, but I think this is maybe the most impressive uh, iteration of transformers uh, with RNN so far. Yeah, this also seems maybe more inspired by RNNs than recurrent transformers, for example, that we've seen before. Like you can almost imagine two ways of approaching this problem where you first, where you look at uh, RNNs and you say, how can I make this more like a transformer? And the other is like, you look at transformers, you say like, how can I make this more like an RNN and maybe have like a, so like a latent representation that you, you pass forward. Anyway, details don't really matter, but like um, it, it's kind of cool to see people approaching this philosophically from both directions. And I kind of wonder if we're going to see a meeting in the middle, a convergence here that actually does unlock a lot more capability. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, scaling is very important when you get to very large models. So could be a very, very influential event if we actually do iterate on the base model of transformers, which there's been a lot of efficient transformers and so on, but so far nothing beats just the expensive models. Next, enabling large language models to generate text with citations. Pretty straightforward. There's a new benchmark called uh, ALCE, Automatic LLMs with Citation Evaluation. They uh, create the data set and some automatic metrics for correctness and citation quality and fluency and show that uh, they can get better results. And um, that is important because as we know, language models and chatbots can make things up. They even make up false citations. So it's very important to make progress on them actually having proper citations. So how exactly do they manage to um, to measure the like citation accuracy? Do they do they talk about that? 
I would have to take a deeper look. I, I just skimmed. I believe that's just a property of a data set that they have uh, in terms mm-hmm. of you know associated known uh, things. Uh, but yeah, I, I <laughs> they do explain it, but I haven't looked quite that deep. No, no, no. I mean, that makes total sense. There's so much stuff going on. It it, uh, it does make me think a little bit of the the various like self-correction schemes that we've seen proposed. You know, like people increasingly using like GPT-4 to study the text that it itself generates. And this seems like a data-driven approach to that. So kind of cool to see anyway. The, the different strategies emerging as people try to figure out how do you how do you actually get these things to not hallucinate, which seems to be a weirdly difficult problem to solve. Definitely. Last, we have training diffusion models with reinforcement learning. So this is uh, kind of was a pretty popular thing on Twitter where they showed that instead of just training uh, diffusion models, which are these kind of the way you generate images now, synthetic images, usually do that with kind of just replicating the images in the training set but that doesn't necessarily do what you want. You may want to be able to generate images that you know optimize for compressibility or certain aesthetic quality or, or prompt alignment. So in the case of inputs of text, you may yeah just want different things that aren't just what you see. And uh, yeah, this is showing how you can do that with reinforcement learning instead of having just this uh, matching likelihood objective, you can do this multi-step denoising operation. And as you do a reinforcement learning, you uh, need a reward. They make a reward via another language model. And uh, yeah, they have pretty impressive results. This is a different training paradigm that makes it easier to create all sorts of text to language models optimized for different uh, use cases. I just think it's really interesting how reinforcement learning, you know, a, a while ago, people thought that that was like going to be the path to AGI in and of itself. But now it's kind of taking on this role as just a more of a, a step that you tack on top of a, a deep learning framework just to align it better, just to steer it better, to have more control over the loss function or whatever. But the thing that is actually doing most of the the work increasingly feels like it's it's deep neural networks. Like this kind of reminds me vaguely of you know reinforcement learning from human feedback or other strategies like that, where you know you you um, essentially use RL to more closely steer your base model. Um, yeah, I think it's part of that. I think so far we've what has been the case with ChatGPT and these image models, we've sort of bore or have leveraged the fruit of just having all this knowledge accessible. So really yeah. what do models learn is knowledge, right? Is just compressing everything we know into them. Um, reinforcement learning is better for when you need to learn by interacting with an environment, learn novel skills. And I still do think there will be cases where it's needed. Like the Minecraft example we just had isn't using reinforcement learning optimization, but is essentially still reinforcement learning. It's learning by trial and error. So yeah, this is an example where maybe you can't always just do a data set without a trial and error. But yeah, uh, yeah if it's going to be a component, but maybe less of a component than some people thought. 
No, it's it's funny that you mentioned that. I eh? like this question. Is it actually reinforcement learning? Like, is, if you do it with a language model in a way that kind of yeah has the same spirit, but doesn't actually have an explicit like reward and you know environment and and state kind of fed back into it, like does that count as as RL? And I think that anyway, as an aside, I think that's a fascinating question. Yeah, it, it's kind of a loose term, so you can define it in different ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, taking off policy and safety, and boy, what a week for policy and safety. So we're going to kick things off with this, um, not quite an article, this is actually a bulletin that comes out of the office of the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom that says, PM meeting with leading CEOs in AI, 24th May 2023, so a few days ago from uh, from today. So you know, this is on the, the back of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, so the President of the United States, the Vice President, meeting with uh, the CEOs of OpenAI, Google DeepMind, Anthropic, and uh, I think uh, Satya Nadella of Microsoft might have been there as well. And anyway, Sundar. So like it was a whole the who's who of like AGI type research. And now we're seeing a similar meeting with the United Kingdom, the the uh, Prime Minister of the UK plus his Secretary of State for Science, Technology, and Innovation. And I think the really interesting thing is we're starting to hear people say the quiet part out loud. So in particular, there was a lot of reference here to existential threats. They say explicitly, the PM and CEOs discussed the risks of the technology ranging from disinformation and national security to existential threats. And uh, anyway, it's kind of of interesting to see this being taken more and more seriously, not just by the leading labs. We're now getting pretty close to a consensus among the leading labs that, that are pushing the frontier on AGI. Um, plus even two out of three of the founders of deep learning now. We've got jo- uh, Joshua Bengio and, and Jeff Hinton who've come out making statements about AGI and existential risk. Um, so anyway, cool to see it taken seriously at the executive level in uh, in all these countries. Exactly. And I think the fact that OpenAI and DeepMind and Anthropic, the ones that are sort of leading the charge on influencing the world with big models, all of them were founded by people who already took this issue seriously. So even though maybe it was a smaller group of people that was very concerned or, or thought about this a lot, now that they are the leaders of this whole wave in a way, uh, it's interesting how that is propagating from them and from just the sheer impact of what you're seeing. So definitely a trend, yeah. Yeah, and and we've seen also like minds change on top of people who already held this view. Like you know, Hinton and Bengio were two guys who never thought of this, never took it particularly seriously. It seems until until recently, and they've had their minds changed. Um, so sort of interesting mix here. I, I will comment on one last thing here is the UK in particular has been all over this, like way before it was cool um, last year. Uh, their Ministry of Defense's Defense AI Strategy document referenced. AI existential risk explicitly. So it's really interesting. This is, I don't think, a coincidence. You know, DeepMind was founded in the United Kingdom. Uh, they have GovAI, kind of Oxford University's Future of Humanity Institute that focuses on a lot of these risk classes. Uh, they have, uh, I think, Cambridge has a Center for Study of Existential Risk, if I'm not butchering that acronym. So there's a whole ecosystem there and a lot of awareness. Uh, I happen to know in Boris Johnson's cabinet, there was awareness as well of existential risk and an interest in pursuing that. So it's kind of cool to see that that's persisted after, after Bojo's departure. And we now have Rishi Sunak in power kind of looking at this issue as well. So sort of cool. Yeah. 
Next, an early warning system for novel AI risks. And this is from DeepMind, so again, kind of related. And this is, uh, yeah, kind of a pretty cool idea of how do you have a warning system? How do you kind of catch if there is a development in your AI system that may be dangerous. Uh, and the basic idea here is to do model evaluation and try to catch these emerging trends uh, for whether a model is capable of extreme harm and whether it wants to do, has a propensity for causing extreme harm. And how would you do that? Well, you would identify certain behaviors that have been uh, found in the literature, like power seeking, uh, resisting, shutting down, which is maybe more hypothetical. But uh, yeah, generally these kinds of things uh, that could lead to very bad consequences and maybe the actual like potential for the model to do that if you deploy it. Yeah. And the framing of this too is kind of interesting because they explicitly differentiate between um, the idea of malicious use or kind of weaponization and uh, just this, the idea of an AI that develops enough context awareness to engage in power-seeking behaviors. So in one case, you know, with malicious use or weaponization, you have the idea of a bad actor who just leverages a really powerful system to cause ex extinction-level risk, whether by you know, designing a new pathogen or designing you know, whatever self-replicating nanobots or whatever insane uh, tech you could develop with this kind of technology. On the other, you have a system that itself recognizes whatever it's been trained to do, that it has an incentive to not be turned off because the system you know, can't pursue whatever objective it's internalized if it's turned off um, and you know it therefore wants to seek more more power and more resources all the standard kind of power seeking arguments that we've seen um, so dealing with those two problems is kind of a there are slightly different risk classes but the framing here is like before you hit that stage where the system is intrinsically dangerous you go through a phase where malicious use is the, the big risk. And the space between those two might be really short. So it might be the case that the kinds of systems that pose extinction level risks through malicious use are very close, uh, closely followed by the kinds of systems that just intrinsically, uh, intrinsically power seek and do that sort of thing. So um, I thought this was really interesting. It's another data point in favor of the idea of external audits of these models. Um, I'll point out that the uh, first author of this uh, of this whole uh, article, this research paper, Toby Chavlain, is known for having put forward this idea of um, of what he called, uh, what was it? Oh my God, uh, how am I forgetting this? Um, uh, structured access, that's it, structured access. So this is the idea that um, you want to, you often want to allow a limited level of access to whether it's external auditors or users to your model through an API. And uh, that can allow them to learn about the system and its risks without necessarily exposing IP, without necessarily allowing people to copy your model. And this is something that's really going to be required if we will have, if we are going to have these audits and these kind of red teaming exercises. And so uh, anyway, it kind of explores some of the, the details we don't have to get into about how structured access might work in this context. Yeah, I think this is awesome work. It makes a lot of sense to want an early warning system and the overall approach seems uh, quite smart. So nice to see DeepMind somewhat like Anthropic still publishing these um, more grounded ideas on how mm -hmm. do we actually do it as opposed to what we should be, be worried by. This is more like 
let's do this now. Yeah. Next, uh, kind of also related, we have a lot of nice related things today. Uh, we mentioned this briefly last week from Yoshua Benjio, a blog post called How Rogue AIs May Arise. And yeah, it's uh, a more analytical look into you know how could bad AI that's misaligned uh, happen, building on some of the existing theories. It's pretty technical so we won't get too into it too much but definitely you know given the stature of Yoshio Benjiro it's uh, as we've talked about kind of a big deal that there's a lot of attention being driven to it yeah i thought one of the cool things here is it gives us a lens into what specifically Benjiro thinks uh, existential risk will come from in these systems so he seems to lean heavily on power seeking and reward hacking as his like kind of choice uh, choice reasons for worrying about this stuff. But his main point, yeah, is like, look, we do not have any way right now of having safety guarantees for systems that may exceed human cognitive capacity broadly. And we may be building these systems fairly soon. And so he's basically just saying like, yo, let's like, let's do something about this. So uh, <laughs> seems fairly sensical on the whole. Yeah. It's kind of ironic now we just mentioned that we're not doing reinforcement learning for <laughs> AGI, but reward hacking is one of the main uh, worries. Uh, but yeah, no, it's 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 a great blog post and it's a good topic to talk about. It, it is also true that like reward hacking is viewed as a potential source of risk, even with just like scaled transformers, um, just due to like their increasing amount of context on the world. And eventually they effectively approximate long-term planners. So it's like, it, it's, it is this interesting kind of question of where do you think the risk is going to come from? And you're right. Like part of this is how likely do you think reinforcement learning is going to underpin AGI in the future? And no one really knows. And that's kind of like part of his, his point in this long post. Um, but yeah, two for three, man. The godfathers of AI now saying, yo, kind of regret my career, which is another thing that he said in a BBC article recently. Next, uh, two things from OpenAI, Democratic Inputs to AI, which is their nonprofit organization, OpenAI Inc., is launching a program to award 10 $100,000 grants to fund experiments in setting up democratic processes for deciding what rules AI systems uh, should follow within bounds of a law. So that's a whole new initiative. And then there was also a blog post by OpenAI called Governance of Superintelligence, uh, that kind of discusses uh, some of the motivation for this and just the general topic. Yeah, it's like the the worldwide AI safety tour seems to be happening right now with um, with the UK and and you know United States POTUS and all that stuff. And now OpenAI really leaning into this. Like Sam Altman testified before the Senate and raised a lot of these concerns in the governance of superintelligence blog posts. You know, one of the things that he mentioned was we should set up something like the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, to like to monitor superintelligence research, research on on AI superintelligence, um, and like that you should have some international authority that can inspect systems above a certain level of capability. Like all these kinds of things now seem to be on the table, um, thanks in part to Sam Altman kind of flagging them very publicly recently, uh, and uh, and OpenAI kind of backing that up with essentially a, a call to have people say like, hey, uh, 
here's how we think you should you should govern AI and, and make it more democratic and kind of give these systems goals that are consistent with a more a more democratic picture rather than just having like OpenAI decree what this AGI is going to uh, to do. So kind of cool from a goodwill standpoint, seeing them actually try to try to connect those dots and, and seek out uh, support on governance. And again, building on this whole topic, we this is a real week for AI safety and, and discussion. Next story is top AI researchers and CEOs warn against risk of extinction in 22 word statement. So this was published by VSF based nonprofit, the Center for AI Safety. Uh, co-signed by people like uh, DeepMind CEO and OpenAI CEO and Jeffrey Hinton and Yoshio Benjiro. So pretty much building on what we've been saying. And it's a 22-word statement. So here's what it is. Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. Pretty much... You know, getting a point, as you said, making it very explicit, very clear that we should prioritize this. Yeah, it's it's funny. Like, so they they kind of explain why this is just a twenty two word statement, and basically, it's just like a million different opinions about. You know, if if you try to get people to agree on anything longer than this, you'll quickly find that like. People disagree about where the risk comes from. You know, is it is it AGI? Is it before AGI? What is AGI? Like, is it power seeking? All these things. And so I think this reflects an effort to just kind of create the broadest possible tent and bring as many people as possible into the fold. And that's really where you're seeing a lot of people who did not, by the way, sign the famous six-month AI pause letter, now actually signing on to this. So a broader statement that is maybe more inclusive, and, and this is why there's so much backing for it. Um, maybe reflects a broader effort from the community to try to at least get some basic alignment on the issue so everybody can row in the same direction. Um, and, and as I say this, I notice that Andre is highlighting this uh, section where it says, at the time of writing, the, <laughs> the years, uh, well, Yan LeCun, basically now the chief AI scientist at Facebook uh, or at Meta, has not yet signed. Maybe, maybe no surprise there. No surprise. Uh, yeah, I really like this initiative. You know, there has been this coalition in a way that has pretty much, as we've been covering, been uh, forming. And this is a nice, clear statement that we care about this and we think you should care about this. And that I think what was sort of what the six-month letter really wanted to say, uh, but then said this right. whole other weird thing. So <laughs> I, I really like this move to just be straight to a point. Yeah. And last story, there's not much of a story, you won't go into it, but in the New York Times, there was an article called Why an Octopus, Octopus-like Creature Has Come to Symbolize the State of AI. This is about this meme about the Shogoth, uh, a little way to visualize GPT-3 and GPT-3 with uh, instruction tuning for chatbot usage. And I think... It's probably easier if you are not aware of Shogoff and this meme. You can just go and read it. It goes into it quite clearly. Uh, but yeah, again, it's it's a sign of a times that there's a whole article devoted to this New York Times. And this used to be just a very, very niche meme for AI safety people. Oh, man. I got to tell I was looking forward all day to like hearing you explain the Shoggoth meme because I was like, how is he going to pull this off? This is so hard to explain. <laughs> but but yeah, no, I mean, uh, I think it, like 
I don't know. Is it, is it worth trying, like for like thirty seconds, just to try to sketch out like what, what this yeah, feel, means? Feel free. Yeah, maybe a quick one. We just want to yeah. get into it. Okay, uh, I'll try to do it super fast. Basically, like you take a, a base model like GPT three, you train it to do autocomplete on a giant amount of text. In the process, it learns a ton of facts about the world, um, but we actually have no idea what, in a sense, what the mind behind that looks like. It's just this like giant sponge that soaked up facts. And so in a sense, it's like this creepy monster thing that at a certain threshold, people worry if, if you do this too much, if you scale it too much, it gets so much context awareness that it becomes dangerous. So it's, it becomes this like terrifying little octopus monster thing. Then um, that octopus monster will sometimes spew out racist shit because of course it will. You trained it on the entire internet. Why would you not expect it to? So then you go, okay, I'm going to put a process on top of this that fine tunes it based on reinforcement learning from human feedback to say nice things. Now, the point of this meme is that the reinforcement learning from human feedback step is kind of like putting lipstick on a pig. You are taking this giant shoggoth monster thing that wants to potentially eat you alive, and then you're slapping like a little smiley face on top of it to make it nice to the outside world, but that's actually just a veneer. The underlying beast monster creepy thing is still this terrifying, inscrutable, complex, like potential, uh, down the road, potentially super intelligence thing. Um, I don't know. How'd I do? How was that? that yeah, that's, that's a, it's a good summary. Yeah. And again, it's become a whole like genre where you have a lot of new visualizations. The first meme is a very sort of rough sketch. It's kind of fun looking. So again, yeah, like we've said many times today, it's surreal how commonplace mainstream this has become. Amen. And closing out with synthetic media and art, first we have Grimes invited anyone to make AI Grimes song. Here are her reviews from the New York Times. And also there was a blog post. I used Grimes AI vocals to make a hit. Here's how I did it. Quick version is Grimes actually published a software tool, elf.tech, where you can upload uh, your voice or a voice and transform it to sound like Grimes. And then given that... AI-generated uh, voice, you can make music. You can you know, make uh, lyrics, vocals, and combine it to other stuff. And the New York Times piece is an interview where Grimes shares quite a few opinions about uh, how, for instance, explaining what she's doing, uh, how the tool was trained, you know, what if somebody makes a hateful song with it, uh, and some feedback on some of the songs that have come out that uh, Grimes really likes, uh, including one that is described in this How I Used uh, the Tool to Make a Hit. Uh, it's a cool piece. We, you know, you probably should, if you're interested, just go and listen to these songs in uh, these articles. So, again, Follow the link if you think this is interesting. Yeah, it is kind of cool to see the, I don't know if polarization is the right word, but we've definitely seen different artists take to generative AI differently, right? There was like, I think, so Grimes obviously is in the the pro, like, yeah, use AI, like on my voice, do, do what you will, just make sure you give me a cut of it or whatever. And then I think there was Drake, I think we covered a Drake story, right? A couple of weeks ago where he was like, yo, don't do that shit. I don't like that shit. And uh, anyway, it like, I think regulation is going to be important in, in deciding what ends up happening here. But if nothing gets regulated, ultimately perspectives like Grimes, I think, are the only ones that uh, that are going to be profitable, if only for a relatively short period of time, until you can completely automate this stuff uh, without necessarily, you know, paying creators, which is a sort of scary thought. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting that this platform basically directly enables people to do what people have started doing anyway, right? Trade GPT and, and some of the other examples are doing the same thing. And Grimes is just saying, oh, well, go ahead. I'll yeah. make it easy for you. And in a way that makes for better music and Grimes has some control of it. So interesting to see this uh, kind of contrast. And just one more story we have as a lifelong Beatles fan, this AI-generated Beatles music is blowing my mind. Yeah, it's a little discussion of an AI-generated Beatles song that uh, is what it would have sounded like if John instead of Paul had sung the gorgeous tune about the sign in the shop window. And yeah, if you listen to it, it's a high-quality um, audio. You, It's pretty hard to tell that it's AI and it is interesting to read how a fan of Beatles would react to this uh, AI-generated kind of alternative version of the song. Yeah, it's also kind of a more, let's say, unambiguously positive case for this, right? Because like you'd imagine in the limiting case, you have uh, creators who have since passed away or who no longer have the rights to their their music or whatever, because the copyright window has passed. And then like, you know, now we can really, you know, re recreate or, or um, let's say revive a lot of their, uh, their talents in this way. So, you know, uh, obviously the Beatles still own their copyrights here, but uh, you know, as, as that, that window starts to pass and we look at certainly old content creators, like, man, I'd love to hear what Charlie Chaplin would have done with this or whatever. That sort of thing is like a pretty clearly positive, uh, positive thing. And, um, though it does maybe muddy the waters is between what's original created content by that group and what's not. But hell, what what doesn't these days? Exactly. Um, so that's it. We're going to stop there. I think I might include a few other links in the podcast description for things that maybe uh, we kind of didn't get around to. Uh, as always, you can go to lastweekin.ai to see all of these sorts of articles. Please get in touch at contact at lastweekin.ai or on Substack or YouTube or Apple Podcasts. We haven't had any reviews in a while, so always like those five-star reviews. And let us know. Yeah, do you like discussion? Do you like summary? Um, do you have any questions, any topics we should talk about? Do you want us to do an AI safety podcast? We'd really love to hear from you. And that's it. Be sure to keep tuning in.